This bonus series was launched in cooperation with Six Swiss Exchange. It focuses on companies that completed the Sparks IPO Academy course, a six-month fast-track IPO training program designed for high-potential scale-ups. And now, on with the show. Deep-sea shipping is uh, incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult to decarbonize. There are not many options today. And they are, and it's vital. It's like 90% of the, the transportation is good is done, is done through the sea. They are the backbone of the global economy. And, and there would not be globalization without shipping. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Mario, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, Sylvan. You are the co-founder and CEO at Daphne Technologies a climate deep tech company reducing air pollution produced by the global shipping industry. And that's also where you started, basically. After your high school, you started working as an engineer aboard the Navy, but also commercial ships. And then you decided to go and study engineering physics. What sort of made you exchange the ocean for solid ground? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's correct. Yeah, I started uh, on board ships. I started as my first professional job. Uh, after conscription, I continued in the Navy and then in the commercial vessels. And I did that for, for a long time. I did about five years sailing, straight sailing. Uh, and then I started my university while still working. So the transition was gradual. But uh, basically, I started quite young, at about 16 years old. And there, there was really never the plan that I was just going to sail. Mm-hmm. It is a great profession and I loved it. But at some point, well, I want to finish my degree yeah. and I don't want to continue selling all my life. Yeah, I really wanted to do engineering. And at that, that was the right time to do it. So I, I needed to decide then, you know, I was going to be too old to, back, to go back to school, basically. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, what, that's why I made the change. Fantastic. And you then also finished a PhD in, in physics. What were your plans back then? Were you sort of planning to be a scientist, a researcher and... Was entrepreneurship on your mind at all? I went from sailing uh-huh. to working on board the ships to do my degree, my engineering physics degree. Yeah. Uh, after that, I actually worked in the semiconductor industry briefly, mm-hmm. and I worked for the inject printing industry, large industrial machine. So very much like industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always, because of my engineering physics background or degree, I, I was always put in projects that require a lot of knowledge of the device level, of the physics level, and that kind of led into the the PhD. Mm-hmm. And I did a PhD in physics. But the, uh, I was always interested in industry, so I always saw myself as kind of the bridge between deep science and industry applications. Right. And at the time, I didn't have the, the language to express it, but now they call it deep tech. Yeah. And that's exactly what I wanted to do all the time during the, the PhD. Now, the second question is about entrepreneurship, and that comes back a little bit to where I grew up. So uh, my dad had a textile factory that he did, and then he did, he did also manufacture oil paintings, and my mom had a restaurant, and then she had a, a catering business. And so I come from Colombia, so you are on your own. That's kind of, at the time, that was the culture. Mm-hmm. So 
it was very weird for me. Find my family is like, okay, you you now work for a large corporation, or you 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 are an employee. Uh, they never experienced that in their lives. So mm-hmm. I also always had this entrepreneurship in mind. That that's kind of from where I come from. And um, so when I was finishing my PhD and thinking, okay, I, I really like to do deep tech. I want to do this without knowing that I was deep tech. <laughs> so I could go and look for a company that uh, that does deep deep research. Mm-hmm. And there are many those IBM at the time. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Or I could start a company. But entrepreneurship was always there, and I eventually decided to do entrepreneurship. You then sort of combined the two passions, right? Um, entrepreneurship and deep tech together. Exactly. Yeah, and and maritime. So it was really uh, a good like at point when in my life I I, I want to bring everything that I love together, and I mm-hmm. want entrepreneurship, I like deep tech, and I really like the deep sea maritime. I like uh, shipping, and I said, well, this seems to be an opportunity now to leverage everything, mm-hmm. and that was through entrepreneurship. I don't think I could have been able to do that if I I went to a, a, an established company. No. It would have been very difficult, I think. Fair point. We heard you grew up in Colombia. You also went to the Navy and the commercial ships there. Yeah. What then eventually brought you to Switzerland? Because today we're here sitting in Zurich. Um, mm-hmm. What what brought you to to Switzerland? Yeah. So so I finished my PhD and uh, and and I did uh, I during my PhD I developed some system for uh, that was going to be used in experiment at CERN at the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah. At the same time, my wife, she decided to go to school in the UK. Mm-hmm. My wife is from Canada. So um, so I have, okay, so I I clearly have to move to Europe. <laughs> my wife is here. Uh, she's in, in the UK. And I said, well, and CERN is there. I can continue my job at CERN. Mm-hmm. So it, it was an easy decision, though. So I, I continue basically my work from my PhD, bring it to a realization where we actually do experiments with and and I could commute to the UK. So yeah. that's why I originally came to Switzerland. Now, yeah. there is a little bit more to the story, though. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know much about Switzerland, just to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it seems like a very idyllic country. Uh, but I didn't know how industrial how industrial Switzerland is and the fact is how advanced is in or how many innovation has come out of Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came to Switzerland, I, of course, CERN is a big research center. But it's nothing compared to the rest of Switzerland, though. Like I started learning about the big companies, uh, the big corporations, and the, all the innovations in Switzerland. And I also learned how, okay, Switzerland is not afraid of hardware or deep tech. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's when I decided, okay, this is really the place to start a, a deep tech company. Yeah. Much more than the UK or any other country. That, that's when I learned that, okay, this is the right place for, for Daphne. And, and that's how I ended up here. Amazing. How was it for you? You said you didn't know much about Switzerland. When you then actually came here, what was sort of your start, your first impression of Switzerland? Because, you know, it can also be difficult to find friends, to find a connection to a country that you are completely new to. And that also probably has a, quite a different language and culture. Yeah. yeah. So I had a I had moved already, so yeah. because I grew up in Colombia, I lived briefly in Brazil. Uh, I moved to that, that was with family and whatnot, but I moved also to to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're moving to the UK, so I'm, though I'm used to moving around, so it wasn't too difficult to adjust in a sense to a, to a new language. Uh, one thing is moving from from Colombia to Canada. I, I thought it was easier to move to at least to the to the French part of Switzerland. 
it, some similarities in the language, at least French, mm -hmm. Spanish. Yeah. So, so I didn't find moving here too difficult, though. I was very impressed that since I got to Switzerland and 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 uh, I, I immediately I thought that it's just amazing though everything here works, you know, for for <laughs> for once. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the the society seems to 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 be very. Um, common sense mm -hmm. you know everything that Swiss do are very common sense so at least they regard common sense with oh. uh, very high regard for common sense and that's something that you don't find in many places yeah. and uh and then I started learning okay but like the Swiss they're not a banking nation per se they have mm -hmm. banking but they are not a banking nation they, they are really a, an industrialist nation and Fair, that's yeah. kind of what uh initially I was more interested in that because I was thinking in Daphne that in really uh, assimilating from a social point of view. So I, I have to say, I really didn't really make a lot of friends. I was just working all the time. And, yeah. and, but I really like it. And that's when, uh, at some point, when my wife finished her PhD, she said, okay, we, we have to move to Switzerland. We have to stay here because this is really the place to be. Yeah. After that, we had kids and mm -hmm. we started, uh, that, that's when really the adaptation started. So I would say I first came here to, to get the job done. And after a few years, and it's okay. Well, let's. I started to to get to know the culture a little bit better, mm -hmm. and and it's great. I mean, I think Switzerland has really um, has been very welcoming to us, at least and to me. And and my kids are born here. They're as Swiss as they can be. I mean, they're not <laughs> not from Swiss parents, but they they are very Swiss in their way. So so yeah, we I feel very welcome here. I like that. Thank you for for sharing that perspective and that story. Let's talk about your company. You founded Daphne Technology in 2017. You did so as a solo founder. Why was that the right setup? Because that also sounds very, very challenging. Yeah, so I think that really comes to, to definition. So I wouldn't consider myself a solo founder. It says mm -hmm. I, I had a mentor at the time. Okay. And uh, the mentor was an ex-executive ex -executive from uh, Hewlett-Packard. So very experienced mm -hmm. in innovation and distribution sales specifically. And uh, he, he, someone that I met at a pitching competition, I did start pitching alone and started, started moving this by myself. Yeah. But very early I met uh, this Graham Valentine. He was an expat living here. He came from HP back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he, he was really a good mentor and he was very involved um, and he helped me a lot. At the beginning, so he's a co-founder by all sorts of definition. He's yeah. a co-founder. He provided some of the initial capital when we incorporated, and he was also the chairman of our board for at least the first two years. Um, so he never really worked in an executive manner. So he was never in the day-to-day -day activities of the company. But he was, he was really uh, uh, the, he was really always there. To yeah. support, so that that's what I consider the co-founder. Absolutely. Um, and now it really came up to like the day-to-day -day activities, and what I found out is at the time when I wanted to start the company, I could not find uh, someone that had the right set of skills for what we needed, and that had the the, the dedication that I thought we needed. Mm -hmm. I wanted someone hundred percent in. I didn't want people working part time in their postdocs or part time in the research uh, or in their consultancy. Mm -hmm. And part time in the company, I didn't think that that was going to work. So I said, "Well, you are you are in or you are out." Full full focus, full steam ahead. Full focus, full steam ahead, yeah. and that, that I couldn't find that. And and as a lot of the activities I could do with consultants. So I didn't mm -hmm. have a lot of funds, but we had some grants. And for what would I could pay consultants? It was delivery based, so we yeah. just got what we needed. So yeah. it was a very good setup to get 
that I, what I could not do myself. And mm-hmm. a lot of things I could do because it was very early stage. So research, apply for research grants, um, right. manage a project in a university. And, and I had the support of the EPFL. And so it, I could do it. Mm-hmm. And who were then the first team members that you hired? So so I would say from, this is we have a lot of consultants at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, even to some of the consultants I... I uh, at some point, I thought some consultants that did some pro bono working and with some skills that we thought we needed, we actually offered equity. Uh, that didn't work out, by the way. <laughs> the I end. wanted to ask, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I would say the first employees of Daphne, I think there were four employees. There mm-hmm. were like three technical, one administration. Yep. From the three technical guys, there is one is our CTO. Mm-hmm. So he joined very early. It's uh, William, William Ramsey. He's the CTO of Daphne. Uh, one went to start his own company. Yeah. He was in Sweden, an engineer in Sweden. And the other one was an uh, intern, first job. So he stayed with the company about two, three years. And yeah. now he left. He, he needed to do something else, obviously. Sure. But um, yeah, and, and administration uh, and finance functioned. Uh, we we eventually, at some point, we, we decided to work with uh, FiduShare, with mm-hmm. uh, outsource that activity. And at some point, it's, this, this is a very difficult role because you go from having very little needs that you don't really need to have a person at the time to having a very experienced CFO. Yeah. And there is no middle point. Yeah. So that I think that's where we have uh, at the, we, we have a very good CFO now. He's been with us for about two years, but he was very experienced, 11 years mm-hmm. in the startups, you know? Yeah. And we went, so we went from working with a outsourced 100% feed share to a full-on fledged, very experienced CFO, and there is nothing in between. Right. I think yeah. I find that position challenging for startups. Yeah. I want to talk about the consultants you mentioned at the beginning, yeah. because often I feel that for every startup we have in Switzerland, there are at least 10 or 20 consultants that want to help you along the journey. And often, me personally, I'm quite skeptical, you know? You don't invest, you're, you don't work full-time, you don't really have the skin in the game, but your incentive really is to charge me as many hours as possible. With your experience, what you just shared, it sounds like the consultants at the beginning were quite an essential you know, setup or part of getting everything up to speed. So how did you, first of all, choose the right consultants and how did you work with them to actually set up your company for success and avoid getting ripped off by the hourly bill? No, that, that's uh, so. Initially, we did get rip off many times okay. by the hourly bill, and we learned along the way that you should not do that, especially at the early stages. Uh, you can do that, and we do that with some consultants. We already know that they deliver, mm-hmm. but at the beginning, uh, that doesn't work. It works uh, ba- deliverably, del- deliverable based. That's how it works, yeah. and 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 you get what you need, mm-hmm. and and you pay, and you're happy to pay. Yeah. Uh, we did some consultants that we thought were very key because we were doing most of the market analysis and for fundraising specifically and things like that. So I said, well, you, you know the market, you were doing this day to day. And these consultants did some pro bono working. So it was perfect. We need the, this key. They are working with us. We cannot pay a lot of money. And we entered into an extended relationship. And we decided at some point, why don't you work with us and we pay equity? Uh, and that equity would be personal. I mean, there is a lot of nuisance about that, but uh, mm-hmm. we we agreed to that. We were smart enough to have some some sort of vesting and and say, well, if you don't deliver, you don't get the equity. But that, that was at the very beginning of the company a formation. Mm-hmm. I would say that's a mistake because the consultants don't. If they have a consultancy, I mean, there's always a person behind the consultancy. You know, of course. this case is a, a solo person behind the consultancy, and that person has different motivations. And as soon as you hit an obstacle 
or they get a better contract, <laughs> yeah. then that's it. That's when the relationship becomes sour. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to us. As soon as we, read, we, we, we are hitting an obstacle, the person, well, this is too much work and mm -hmm. I have plan B. Of or plan A, actually. This was always plan B. Yeah. Like, just keep that in mind. Yeah. Startup is always plan B. Yeah. Uh, and they may eventually abandon ship, like a uh, jump uh, chip, yeah. if you will. And that's what happened to us. So eventually we, we never gave the equity and whatnot. But uh, now in retrospect, I think about it, it was such as little obstacles. I mean, such a little things. And people yeah. like, okay, this was nothing. There's nothing for people to, to jump ship at this stage. It was not even a risk, a real risk here. <laughs> and now, so how would it be if you really enter into a crisis situation where you're running out of cash, you have one month or less, mm -hmm. and uh, and you don't have a real a clear path? Then it would never work because yeah. the consult if you have the consultancy, you will always have this plan A. Yeah. Uh, and that's my opinion. So I write, I'm all in or nothing. And, uh, and now it doesn't mean that people cannot do other activities, but once they have proven that they can, they they can do their job and and that they are dedicated to the company. I think it really shows how important incentives are to ensure that you're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. And I feel that with the consultants, it's often that there's, oh, nice, I get some equity, but if there's a better offer, I just jump ship. Exactly. The, there's a lack of skin in the game because they don't have to put money on the table that they will lose if they leave early or don't deliver. And I think that's exactly the missing piece. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that is, it's just too easy to, exactly. to, to move to something presumably better, yeah. you know, that... Uh, Let's zoom out a bit. You are, of course, with your companies, we heard also in the shipping industry, in the maritime industry. So how big of a role does the global shipping industry actually play in driving climate change? So, okay, so as it is today, uh, now just two caveats here before the disclaimers mm -hmm. or caveats. Whatever. <laughs> it's, uh, we, we have very, very poor data of emissions. Uh, and that's something that we are trying to solve with pure metrics in one hour. We just don't know, asset owners of infrastructure, they don't know what their emissions are. So all the data that we, we, we have, it's pretty much incomplete. So, so to claim that we know something with the curious, it's no one knows. It's just that start from there, no one knows. And now CO2, we have some good numbers because CO2 you can calculate from fuel com combustion you can calculate the numbers, very little uh, inaccuracies, you know? You know, one ton of oil, how much CO2 produces. So that's easy. All your greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide and methane are not like that. Mm -hmm. There is no a direct line. It's all factor-based. Yeah. And this factor depends on too many variables. So we just simply don't know. That's mm -hmm. the first thing. No one knows. Now, maritime is, very, maritime is about 3% of the global emissions. That's what the statistics, 2.5 to 3%. Mm -hmm. So it's not much. But this is the thing with maritime, the deep sea shipping, uh, I'm not talking about short, short uh, length ferries, those are mm -hmm. fairly easy to decarbonize, but like deep sea shipping is uh, incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult to decarbonize. Yeah. There are not many options today. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are, and it's vital. It's like 90% of the, the transportation is good is done, is done through the sea. They are like, they are the backbone of the global economy. And, and there would not be globalization without shipping. Uh, and tech, you deserve the two things. You need tech, inter, inter, internet for services, and you yeah. need shipping for goods. Mm -hmm. Even if you are not a globalist, if you believe globalization is bad, uh, you still for trade need shipping. So shipping, without shipping would be in, in the caves. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. So it's not so much the amount of greenhouse gas emissions, but the fact that it's indispensable. 
we cannot move away from it. So that's where it needs to be decarbonized. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, um, the, the, other, the other disclaimer, the caveat here is that we are doing more than shipping today. So because we, we are now taking take the same technologies that we developed for shipping, and we are mm -hmm. actually starting to deploy in land base. So we think we can maximize our impact that way. Amazing. And please tell us more about not only how you help to reduce the air pollution from the shipping part, but also in other industries on the land. How does Daphne technology help us to reduce air pollution overall? Yeah, so we we we, we, we say that we our approach is portfolio approach, and I can explain what that means. Mm -hmm. But it means is we focus more than, than just one greenhouse mm -hmm. gas. Uh, and there are many greenhouse gases. There is the non-CO2 greenhouse gases. With this year in COP28, we're actually finally there were uh, there was a lot of discussion about methane and non non CO two greenhouse gases. Um, uh, and for today, our primary focus is methane. Uh, and the reason why is methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. So one ton of methane is instantaneously equivalent to one hundred twenty tons of CO two in warming. Wow. That's what it is. And now methane gets oxidized in the atmosphere. So methane mm -hmm. gets converted into CO2 in the atmosphere, but it's a very slow process. And it takes uh, it, it takes in about 20 years, uh, basically the, the one ton of methane has been reduced. Mm -hmm. So what we say is what it says, in the 20 year horizon, one ton of methane is equivalent to about 86 tons of CO2 because it's being oxidized. And in the 100 years it's 28. Mm -hmm. So that we talk about those horizons. Uh, but as methane is in the atmosphere, one ton of methane is equivalent to 120 tons of CO2. That's crazy. How, how is no one really talking about this? Is it because we cannot measure it? Because I feel everything you read or hear is always about CO2. But I think there is really, when we're talking about decarbonization, there is clearly a, a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think it has to do with education is one thing, but it's, we're just learning as a society. We just don't know okay. a lot of things because we didn't look into it. And now methane, I would say some scientific groups knew about this four years ago. Yeah. But I said, but two years ago, when we started talking about methane, it, people would tell us methane is not an issue. There is no problem with methane. <laughs> methane does not even exist in the atmosphere, like things like that. Yeah. And now people are starting to learn, now is this nitrous oxide. And I can talk about hydrogen as well. There's a lot of things that people don't know about hydrogen that only few groups are very keenly aware. And there is a lot of uh, misinformation and there is a lot of uh, just lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. But as it is today, shipping, so shipping is primarily driven by oil today. So it's, yeah. it's, it's heavy fuel oil and diesel that are moving chip, chips. That's most of mm -hmm. the shipping fleet. And now they, are, they, they, they want to decarbonize. They have goals. So they are, uh, they, there is a transition towards alternative fuels. And the only widely available fuel that exists is LNG. It's natural gas. So what we see is that it's is great because when you move from oil to natural gas, you reduce the black carbon, particular matter emissions, NOx, toxic emissions, sulfur oxide. So you eliminate all that mm -hmm. and you eliminate the CO2 by about 25%. But now you have the little methane that escapes and that methane completely destroys the, the balance because uh, now we, the, we you take into account the methane and how powerful it is so that you end up producing perhaps being as damaging as emissions from pure oil. Yeah. So that's why we're focusing on eliminating the methane. Because we say the methane, if we eliminate methane, there is a transition fuel that can take us closer to the goals. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same thing for land base. We are seeing an incredible move, a movement from uh, coal and oil to natural gas. Uh, uh, and natural gas is going to be around for many years. So we better make it better. 
and it's also a bridge towards other other fuels like mm-hmm. bio LNG, for instance, which actually is give us almost negative carbon emissions in the life cycle. Uh, but even ammonia or hydrogen, that is, uh, it's going to be a gas or a liquefied form fuel, and we we are learning about how to use it through LNG. Mm-hmm. that we already know how to use it. So it's really the bridge to move to the future. And that's why we focus on it. I love that. So you basically help everyone to have a more complete picture of the different fuel methods and what they actually mean and do to the atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. And, and we do that through pure metrics because pure metrics does the measurement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do the measurement. We do the with the reduction with methane or the methane with our sleep pure. Uh, we generate carbon credits with, uh, we should be gener- soon we're going to start generating carbon credits with our, we have a methodology uh, to, based on real time measurements, it's mm-hmm. tons of transparency, people can't really see what's coming out there. Okay. And, and methane has to be eliminated, just, just to give you some numbers, if we, if we don't eliminate methane emissions, we will need to, to meet the Paris Agreement goal of 1.5 degrees warming, we need to eliminate more than 90% of the CO2. If we don't eliminate methane, if we if we actually methane emissions increase by mm-hmm. a small percent by ten percent, it's impossible for us to meet the. Jesus. Uh, yeah. But if we reduce forty five percent of the emissions, uh, we we only have to uh, let me see we have to reduce less than ten percent of the CO two to still meet yeah. the the Paris Agreement. So it's a very powerful greenhouse gas, and it's yeah. a lot of impact in reducing it. You have a bigger leverage there in terms of one yeah. ton of methane reduced has a higher leverage in contributing to. Doing exactly. good to the atmosphere, so exactly. to speak. Exactly, that factor makes yeah. a big difference. How do you exactly do the measurement? Do you have like a hardware component? Yes. How does that work? So for pure metrics, so just to give background, so we, we, we have our methane slip system, uh, slip pure, it reduces methane and, and we wanted to, okay, we need to create incentives uh, for people to do this reduction. One in- incentive, obviously, the voluntary market. And the other one is we need to demonstrate that it's actually doing what we claim to do. So we decided we need to develop the measurement system because as as simple as you think it is, it doesn't exist. You know, it just wasn't widely available, mm-hmm. uh, commercially uh, offer. Uh, and uh, we are seeing some offerings, but we'd say we were one of the first ones. And now what we did is we created this pure metric system, which is really a state of the art. It's like a premium system, it has hardware and it has the software component. Yeah. So we have the, uh, we have the sensors, we selected the best sensors to do the job, mm-hmm. uh, to measure methane, which is not that trivial because there's a whole spectrum of gases that you have to, that are overlap, you have of to course. extract. So we selected the sensors we have, uh, we measure, uh, it's a point source. So you need a chimney to measure, but we can measure basically every variable that you need. Mm-hmm. So we have multiple sensors, uh, all the sensors fit, and then we use a methodology that is actually United Nations approved methodology. It gives you an exact calculation of the kilograms or tons of greenhouse gas. Right. And now the entire the entire data layer is encrypted, is secure, so it can be auditable, very verifiable. And we use it to, uh, and it's intrinsic part of our carbon credit methodology. So you can generate carbon credits if they are verified by pure metrics. Nice. Um, so that's what pure metrics is. And it measures not only methane, it measures CO2, it, it measures the toxic gases, uh, and we, we in the future measure nitrous oxide as well. So it really gives, gives a very good number. And I assume that's where the portfolio approach comes in, right? Yeah, I, I would extend. So <clears throat> the, the portfolio approach means because it comes to this understanding of natural gas decarbonization. So CO2 is there, yes. Absolutely, mm-hmm. we need to reduce CO2. And if you believe in climate warming, so you have to believe that CO2 is causing it. 
uh, we start from that basis that you believe on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now you have water, you have methane, you have nitrous oxide, and now you have alternative fuels. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this is what happens when you, so for instance, a toxic gas is uh, NOx, nitrous oxide. So what happens, you emit nitrous oxide, a regulated gas, it, it produces acid rain and that nitrogen goes into the ground and it's good. It adds nitrogen to the ground, but it also then from the ground comes nitrous uh, N2O, nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas, 300 times equivalent to CO2, one ton of nitrous oxide. Right. Now you have ammonia fuel. Well, ammonia, when it's combusted, it, it, the simulations have shown that it produces N2O, mm-hmm. very strong, very powerful gas, greenhouse gas. Oxy, uh, hydrogen, when you combust hydrogen, is very hot combustion. So you produce six times more NOx than diesel. Right. Uh, sulfur, when you burn any organics, it's usually sulfur. That sulfur becomes SOX, sulfur, sulfur oxide in the exhaust gas. And then when it cools down, it mm-hmm. becomes sulfuric acid. It, it's very difficult to do carbon capture when you have SOX. So well, what do we mean by a portfolio approach? Is we really look and say, well, what do we need to decarbonize? It's not just CO2. You need to re- reduce yeah. sulfur oxides. You need to reduce sulfur. You need, if you're going to burn hydrogen, you need to reduce uh, NOx, nitrogen oxides. If you're going to burn ammonia, you need to do N2O, nitrous oxide. You need to reduce it. Uh, you do methane as well. That we're doing. So that's a portfolio approach. Is we are looking at the entire portfolio. We are now, and now that's the greatest vision for Daphne. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a portfolio approach because we are looking at everything. And now what we see is there is a timeline when things become more important. And for us right now, it's sulfur and methane. Mm-hmm. CO2 is very important as well, but there's many companies doing carbon capture. And we do have a carbon capture technology that we are not pushing today. But uh, but uh, but we say, okay, today, methane, that, that's where you get the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Sulfur, you have to do sulfur today uh, if you want to do carbon capture. Uh, and we see that in the future, as alternative fuels such as ammonia and hydrogen, then we're going to see NOx becomes more important and nitrous oxide becomes more important. And we hope that by that time, we have developments that are ready to do that. It's today is very early stage. So that's what we mean with the portfolio approach. Fantastic. And you also have a more holistic approach from what it seems. Who are your typical customers that you work with? But today is mostly because the Daphne started 100% focused on deep sea shipping. So mm-hmm. uh, our main customer, we have the most tractions are ship owners and charterers. Nice. So a, a lot of our shareholders, they are charterers, so they, they rent vessels to carry, carry goods yeah. or they simply, or they own them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are our main customers because they, they, they have this interest in, in making the chips a little greener mm-hmm. so they can be rented. And the charters, they have an interest to reduce the scope three emissions. Uh, so reduce the, the carbon intensity of the cargo. Got it. Uh, uh, so those are our main customers. And now we, we, we are expanding into um, a land base. And our land base is mostly operators of uh, oil and gas industry. Basically, mm-hmm. they, they, they have power generation, they have compression, they have all the needs. And, mm-hmm. and, and they need to decarbonize that. They would reduce the, 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 their carbon intensity. Mm-hmm. So those are the customers we are discussing with today. Yeah. And how does your business model look like? Because you have the hardware, but also the software combination. How do you put that together in a business model? So we decided to go for the full has SaaS. So we do a subscription for, so we provide the hardware mm-hmm. and we provide the software in a, in a SaaS and the hardware in, I would say, lease or subscription, yeah. but it's a full subscription. We yeah. take care of the hardware, so we make sure the hardware is properly maintained and 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 uh, and gives good numbers and mm-hmm. we 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 charge for the subscription and the software Fantastic. Uh, so that's for pure metrics and now for the sleep pure as it is today is a capital equipment so we sell the equipment mm-hmm. um 
what we are thinking is in the future, we might be able to go to um, methane abatement as a service. We, we charge per ton of methane instead. Mm -hmm. But that requires a lot of capital. So that's something at some point we might get there. Yeah. We, we require the capital to provide that kind of business model. We will talk about how you could get some access to capital yes. uh, to make that happen. Before we do that, I also want to talk about alternative fuels. We heard that there are different ways of fueling the engines or whatever you need to get fueled. In your case, you know, having alternative fuels, do you see that sort of, of, a, of, a, of a competitor that might make your solution obsolete one day? Or based on your more holistic approach, there will basically always be a need for your technology because no matter what fuel, you always need to measure the effects. Uh, yeah, so I would say for Daphne as a company, they, they, we are fuel agnostic. Mm -hmm. So there is no such thing as a clean fuel in the technical <laughs> sense of the word. Yeah. That, that can give you an example. So oil, what we know, oil has particulate matter, sulfur, not NOx, probably when it's combusted, though, it produces all this CO2. Yeah. Uh, when you have natural gas, it's much better, but it has methane, methane emissions that, that need to be eliminated. When you, you go to methanol, it's, methanol is very toxic, first of all. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about traditional methanol, the, 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 the life cycle analysis of methanol is worse than oil, than diesel. We have a publication, it's a peer review paper, which show all the life cycle analysis. And from what you call the tank to well, so basically from the time that the fuel gets to the tank to when it's combusted. So just that part is, is still, it's no better than, than diesel. It has more CO2 production, if I remember well the numbers. But we have as a publication and you can find our website and, and show mm -hmm. the life cycle. Ammonia, life cycle analysis is not any better. Uh, and hydrogen is also not any better. So when you go into, well, but, but you always have the alternative, what you call the renewable. So you can do, you can do green hydrogen. Yes, you can do green hydrogen, but hydrogen, when you combust hydrogen, you produce a lot of NOx, up to five to six times more have been published, have been. Also, when hydrogen is emitted, it, uh, it depletes the OH radical, the hydroxide mm -hmm. radical. And when it depletes that, so it eliminates the only tool the atmosphere has to oxidize methane and, and all greenhouse gases, you know, mm -hmm. and pollutants. So the, 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 the warming potential of hydrogen, indirect warming potential is up to 11. So one ton of hydrogen in the atmosphere is equivalent to about 11 tons of CO2 in terms of hydrogen indirectly. And now hydrogen is such a small mo uh, molecule that escapes. So the, I think the leakage of methane is approximately to about 0.1% of all the methane that is being yeah. uh, used. The, the, methane, the leakage of hydrogen is expected to be 2%. You know, so mm -hmm. if we were to replace natural gas or hydrogen, it would be terrible for the. Yeah. Uh, now you go ammonia. Ammonia is well, ammonia. It, 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 as it is today, we understand it produces nitrous oxide when it's combusting. Now, can this be abated? Yes, that's what we are doing. We are mm -hmm. working on technology to abate that, but it also produces NOx, and ammonia is very toxic as well. And uh, so on. So all it was like, uh, there is not an easy solution. So the only mm -hmm. solution that we see is a combination. And that combination includes natural gas, bio-LNG, and that we can help today and everything we can bring in the future. So I don't see a competition alternative fuels. They don't compete with what we're doing. Right, now yeah. they might compete with the sleep pure, with the specific product mm -hmm. that is 100% focused on natural gas. They do not compete with pure metrics and they don't compete with Daphne. That's kind of my- Makes sense. My, my answer to that. If you look at your setup, your headquarters in Switzerland, in Lausanne, but you also have 
companies in Norway and USA, basically locations of, of your company. You went on international pretty early. And why were these two markets, Norway and the United States, the right locations to go and expand to first? So, yeah, so Norway, it's, um, there are a few maritime nations in the world. Uh, one of them is Japan, mm-hmm. uh, Greece, and, 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 and Norway. Yeah. And now the, the one that is most, the most focused in natural gas is Norway. So Norway has uh, not just the, the LNG carriers, but they have like LNG infrastructure, uh, regasification, or companies that manage that infrastructure. So it was important for us to be commercially in Norway. And Norway is a maritime nation. By ultra, they don't have as many ships as Greece, but they are a big maritime nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, oil is also up there, right? And on oil is also that. up there. You have Equinor and they, <laughs> they have big oil. In Europe, yeah. they, they make the most revenue out of oil, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it was very strategic for us to be there from a commercial perspective. And now the U.S. is the biggest natural gas network in the world is in the U.S. And oh. the U.S. produces a lot of natural gas. So, yeah. so for us, for Sleep Pure, it's strategic to be there. Yeah. Um, so that's why we we focus on those two regions. Now, in the future, we're going to be going to Asia because all the installations, most of the installations, uh, happen in in shipyards in in Asia for the maritime industry. Yeah, right. and, and in the in the Middle East, so in the Middle East, we we are doing some projects now, and we believe that that's a, re- a region that is 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 also interesting. What is difficult is it's diff- diff- different to operate there, but mm-hmm. uh, it's very important region for us as well. So you basically go to where your customers are. Exactly. Very easy. And of course, to finance this international expansion, to also grow your company, you of course also need some funds. You have raised 28 million so far. And you also mentioned that there is a gap between traditional finance and what is required to scale up new climate technology. We read that when doing our research. Can you explain us a bit more about that gap that you see and also experience yourself as a founder? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe... So climate tech is, I mean, we have uh, clean tech for a long time. And I mm-hmm. think that started with solar panels and, you know, electric vehicles back in the day. And, and it has developed. And now we have a specific sex, uh, I would say, segment that we call climate tech. And climate tech is really just about reducing emissions, you know. So, they, and um, uh, these are, this usually requires infrastructure and usually requires to go into what we call hard to abate industries. And they are hard to abate because they, they require massive infrastructure. They have a scale up over the years massively. Mm-hmm. That's what oil, the oil and gas industry, energy measures, they are experts in a scale up. Right. And they have a scale up this industry to trillions. I don't know how big it is. I don't know how the exact numbers, but we are talking in the trillions. Everything that we, we are trying to do as a, as a whole in climate tech is, is in the trillions. Also, we have a lot of the incumbent companies are not really leading this. It's a lot of startups. Mm-hmm. And you can look... Every, everywhere, the, the companies that are leading the, the carbonization effort is, is startups. Sometimes they're working with incumbents, but a lot of them are working solo. Yeah, they are trying to do this. And to be able to, to, to improve that infrastructure or to make sy- systemic change, which is what some of them want to do, you need to invest in projects of that magnitude. That's just that simple. And, and, uh, and where that funding comes, usually project funding. And startups cannot access project funding. Mm-hmm. Why? Because your balance, you, you balance sheet is terrible. You're in red, probably. Yeah. Your revenues are too small for the size of those projects. You don't have the, the track record. So you cannot access project funding. 
Uh, in fact, you cannot access that. So all you're left is with VC funding, equity. Yeah. And, and equity, is, equity is hugely biased towards the, has been traditionally, especially VC, towards the enterprise software. Mm -hmm. So you invest two million, you have a team of people that develop software and they, they become profitable fairly quickly though, because all you need is brain power really. Right. You, are, you are investing in brain power. Super scalable. Super yeah. scalable. Right. Now turn around with most of the investment is a small fraction of the investment, a percentage goes into brain power and the rest goes into buying pieces of metal, you know, <laughs> like, right. like, like hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that's clean tech. So we, I would say yeah, we invest huge amounts in equipment and CapEx compared to what we invest in our team. Yeah, of course. Uh, and equipment and CapEx, that's not scalable. Uh, right. so, so that's kind of a, sh a shift of, of thinking in the VC has to happen. Uh, and it has happened now we have climate tech funds. Yeah. It has happened more in, in messaging than, than fundamental change. <laughs> they still yeah. are looking for the same, the funds have no change. They're still seven year funds. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to get the returns in four or five years. No. They still want to get the same return of 10 times or whatever. They still are looking for this. Uh, so nothing has changed fundamentally. Mm -hmm. It's just the name. Now they call climate, they are climate funds and they look for climate tech, but they are fundamentally, oh yeah, we're doing hardware. There has always been some hardware business. This is not new. Right. But, but there is no really any change that indicates that now we can, we are looking to increase our ticket size tenfold for early stage and we are and our timeline has increased. And that has to happen at that level. Yeah. We start from there and then you go that. That has to completely change how they analyze risk. Yeah. Uh, and project funding, absolutely have to change it. Well, if we want to have this project, we need to change how uh, our risk profiles. And that, so that's a whole, a whole change in the finance industry, the, the way I see it. And, and it's yeah. happening, but probably slower than we expected. Because that well. needs to happen before we can have the technologies to reduce the emissions. Of course, yeah. yeah. There's still a bit of work to do. Another alternative that you are also participating and considering is uh, an IPO, basically. You recently participated in the Swiss Stock Exchange training program called the Sparks IPO Academy, which basically prepares you for an IPO. First of all, what motivated you to participate in that program? Is it really a different way to access funding because the market is not where you would like to to have it yet? Well, uh, yeah, I think why we participate, I think it's twofold. One mm -hmm. is uh, we have VC funds. We have VC, VC investors since the first round of the company yeah. back in 2018. So we, it was led by a VC investor. So uh, we need to have a plan for an exit. That's just, they need to get a return of, of their investment. There's no way around it. So so we have to think about it. Uh, um, the other thing is we, we foresee that if we are going to scale, definitely to be as big as we want it to be, at least we will require a lot of capital. And that's mm -hmm. only accessible through public funds, no. through the ad, through, through an IPO. Um, so what I see today is, uh, so we are doing, we are exploring that option because we we really see that it could be a good way to get enough capital to scale up the company to to the size that we think it could be. Yeah, mm. which we really think it definitely could be a very large corporate, a very large company uh, in the sense that there's, the market is just without bounds. It's, it's a very large market uh, and that we can access to that. The other one is when we're talking about an exit, well, how did you plan for an exit? 
I don't know how to plan for an exit, to be honest, though. It's like, okay, how do you take best, like, do the right things to work towards an exit? But you do the right things for the company. Mm-hmm. You don't plan for the exit, you know? Yeah. Uh, but is it, but what the IPO, like this process of IPO, it seems that it gives you a structured plan where you follow milestones, where you say that in the worst case, if you don't go forward with the IPO, you're still in a better position to manage the company and to prepare it for an ex- exit. Yeah. This is transaction readiness, and I really like that. It gives really clear milestones. So mm-hmm. by this year, we have to have this, by this year, we have to do that, that. Yeah. Uh, and we follow those milestones. At some point, well, it's not necessary anymore, but there's nothing wrong that comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Like you, if anything, you are a better organization yeah. and it gives you those milestones. That's what I really like the process. Fantastic. And what are some of your main takeaways from that program so uh, far? I think the transaction readiness is very important. I mean, yeah. like, it's something that any company could benefit from. Mm-hmm. So just to plan for the IPO, I think there's so many aspects in, on it, but uh, but like the transaction readiness, like these are things that the company will have to take some decisions about reporting, but uh, just getting ready to, to take the decisions, just bring the company governance and uh, like internal operations to a new level. And I think any, every scale up will benefit from doing that. Yeah. Uh, it just makes you a better company. Absolutely. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That's that's what I like about that that, that process. Yeah. And despite the money, the access to public market funds, what would be other benefits of doing an IPO, especially also here in Switzerland? Well, I think there is a, a marketing aspect of it mm-hmm. that 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 can be underestimated. Though I mean, I think most of the IPO is marketing, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, I don't think companies in Switzerland are really well. We don't. Don't spend that much money in, in in marketing as we should. Or mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 watchmaking, obviously. I'm talking about startups, you know. Yeah. But uh, like startups, they don't spend as much money as they they, they should to to be recognized worldwide. And um, mm-hmm. at the, when you do an IPO, you're forced to do that mm-hmm. uh, to take a more structured approach to marketing as well and publicity to get the company known. So I think that's another benefit of it. Absolutely. And do you also see challenges that come with an IPO? Yes, absolutely. So the, the one challenge for a small companies, if you go to one of the small indexes, I'm not sure the liquidity is there. And then you're in a you're kind of in a situation where the valuation is given not by potential, but it's given by performance, mm-hmm. which could be bad if the market is bad. And you are so you are tied to evaluation and, and maybe there is just not enough capital in the index. Uh, or it's a small little capital that a hedge fund can come and and just play with it like short short. Yeah. I mean, there are so many things that can happen. So it's clearly huge cons in being uh, in a, a small index. But uh, yeah, so that's a decision that at some point we have to take. When is the right time? Uh, or do you just wait until you go to a, a more a larger index? Yeah. Absolutely. And now if you look into the future, what are some of the next and most important milestones that you want to hit with Daphne? Well, I mean, next year of Daphne is a deployment. So yeah. we, we have all our technologies have or are being deployed today mm-hmm. in, in real industrial applications. And we, are, we already are offering uh, commercially our products. And so next year is it's clearly commerciality. We need to start selling. Yeah. Um, we need to get significant revenue and, and we need to deploy more. I'm not counting the fact that we still have to do demonstrations because, uh, you know, the, it's, the early adopters for sure, they are there and they will buy, but we need to go beyond the early adopters. And, and that's just through demonstrations and more demonstrations. So next year we will continue doing our demonstrations and try to convince the skepticals. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to continue doing education so companies understand why methane is important, and mm-hmm. we just discussed. And we try to expand in distribution as, as much as we can uh, and deploy. So deployment, I call it all deployment. It's all deployment and dissemination. Deployment and dissemination, that's for us what we have to do. Amazing. And to wrap up the episode today, I also have some rapid fire questions for you. I'm just going to give you different options to choose from or a short question and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Ready. What is the best thing about being a startup founder? Uh, seeing the organization taking a life of it on its own. Nice. What's your biggest ecological sin? I love seafood. I eat too much of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Engineer or entrepreneur? Uh, entrepreneur. I'm not a very good engineer. Yeah. Are you more of a morning bird or more of a night owl? It's definitely a morning bird forcing to be in the morning bird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the last one, that might be tricky. Colombia, Canada, or Switzerland? Uh, this is easy. That's uh, Switzerland. Yeah. My kids are Swiss. They love Switzerland. So I love Switzerland. Wonderful. Mario, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I learned a lot and I love what you're doing. All the best and lots of success for the future. Muchas gracias. Gracias. Yeah, un placer. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.